after that extraordinary time of wonderful worship, I'd like to mention Matt Redman's new book, Face Down. If you haven't had a chance to uh, see that yet, very, very freshly off the press, there's a, a CD that goes with it with the same name. And uh, I had the privilege of reading the manuscript before it was put together. It is a superb, superb book. And uh, I think Matt is a great writer. Uh, he's not only a great songwriter, he has real skill in writing. Here are some of the titles of the chapters. Yes, Face Down is the first one. The Otherness of God. Mysteries So Bright. The Whole Christ. Worship with a Price. The Song of Creation. The Sound of Sheer Silence. Awestruck. It's a great book about God and it calls forth worship. I really recommend it wholeheartedly. One of these little kind of new book styles. Face Down. Matt Redman. Okay, if you have your Bible, would you like to just turn to 1 Samuel and have it open sort of between 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But I won't read all of that, or indeed any of that, but I'll be referring to bits of that, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we feel ourselves privileged, so privileged to know that you delight in our praise. We're so grateful, Lord, that though you are so other than us, so different to us, so vastly beyond our wildest imaginings, yet you take delight in the praise of your people. And Father, we thank you for your intention to bless us tonight, your intention to feed us with truth, to change us from one degree of glory to another, to wash us with the water of the word, to get us ready as a bride appropriate for our heavenly bridegroom. So come, Holy Spirit. Come be our teacher. Come take hold of things that we might understand more clearly what is happening in the earth, what is happening in the church, that we might, Lord, get into this race with joy and delight. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1970s, a remarkable American prophetic preacher called Ern Baxter came to this country and uh, he spoke at a conference I didn't attend, but I heard some of the tapes that came from it. And perhaps there was no series of sermons that he gave so telling as the one which he called the king and his army. It's been on my mind a lot. I know that some years ago, some of us who were exposed to that teaching were incredibly impacted by it. He saw the fresh outpouring of the Spirit that was taking place all over the world. What's come to be known as the charismatic movement the move of God, the outpouring of the Spirit, the great surge of Pentecostal church life, charismatic church life that is circling the globe now. He saw this new, fresh anointing. And uh, he brought teaching that took us to the life of David. And he said that David represented this day of fresh anointing. And as he taught, he contrasted David with Saul. And he said that just as Saul's kingdom gradually crumbled and disappeared and David's kingdom emerged and began to express the purposes of God. So we would see in our generation the dying and the fading of a kingdom that isn't really in step with God and yet has often had the name Christian on it. And he said Saul was known to be head and shoulders taller than his contemporaries. That was his outstanding feature. He was a big guy. He was head and shoulders. And Ern Baxter got hold of that and he said he was a head and shoulders man. 
He was a man that was just uh, brains and brawn. And uh, in contrast, David was God's heart man. He was a man after God's own heart. And Anne Baxter said we would see in our generation churches that reflected Saul's style begin to fade. Now, he was speaking back in the early 70s, I think, something like 30 years ago. He brought this word, and really it was much of a prophetic statement. There wasn't a lot around to show what he was talking about. There's little indications, little signs that something was happening, but 30 years on is dramatically being fulfilled, yes, right around the world. And so he likened Saul to the head and shoulders church, as he called it. What he meant by that was a church that trusted in, yes, head, human wisdom, logic, not really impressed with the inspirational authority of Scripture, began to question Scripture, began to be ashamed of Scripture, things like the blood of Christ and the actual resurrection. They, they were rather ashamed of that. They didn't stand up to uh, intellectual, scientific age. They were rather dismissive of, uh, dismissive of that, but still wanted to be called church. Oh yeah, we're church. We just don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, really. Uh, we know that uh, uh, the, the dream of uh, Martin Luther King, after he died, the dream lived on. I have a dream. He's killed, but the dream lives on. And they began to get settled. Well, yes, Jesus' teaching lives on. Well, we don't believe in an actual resurrection, of course. I mean, we can't be silly in our modern age. And he said there is a, a church out there that is like that, explaining away, but still saying, yes, we're followers of Jesus, we're Christians, but really giving more weight to what seems intellectually acceptable than God's inspired revelation. And then he says, yes, shoulders. That represents human strength, human ability, human power, human ability to organize, to promote, to arrange, to perform, institutionalism, professionalism, democracy, human things that we brought into the church. Saul's kingdom. And he said, it's everywhere, but it will fade. And he spoke on about David's kingdom. I, I felt very stirred by this of late because I feel that whereas when he said that there was little to show for it, more and more now we can see what he was talking about. He said such churches would fade. Now I've just recently written a book called Does the Future Have a Church and started a tour. It's been my joy and privilege of this year to speak to about 10,000 people from Mumbai to South Africa to Holland to across the UK and to some hundreds of leaders and speak about this, this question, does the future have a church? Because we see churches fading on all sides, we see churches closing on all sides. The Times recently reported not only numbers of closing churches, but also in its leader said this, this is a country, the UK, whose traditional faith is slowly retreating into history. They're actually wondering if, if Christianity will survive another few years, given the fall away of numbers. Uh, Nick Page, in his recent book, says that in 1980, since 1980 to 2000, 1.9 million left the British church. The C of E lost 30%, went from 1.3 million in this country to 960,000. 960,000 in this nation. That's a bit like Ryongi Cho has in Seoul, Korea. The Methodist went down by 38%. The Catholics went down by 40%, the Independents by 37%, the URC 
by 36%. These are Nick Page's uh, statistics in his book, The Church Invisible, that's recently come out. He's describing a church that seems to be disappearing off the scene. And here in this town, there are some 12 to 14 churches earmarked for closure. There are debates about the parish church of Hove and the parish church of Brighton. Should they close? Should that, is that the end? I had an interesting discussion on the radio uh, the other day. It was um, uh, uh, on the Today program. It's a morning news item, and uh, the famous interviewer, John Humphreys, speaking to a vicar who'd got problems with bats in his church. And the bats were giving problems. They were making a, a smell of droppings and all sorts of problems. And the congregation wondering, what could they do with the bats in the church? And he was asked, how many in the congregation? He said, well, there are 11 of us. Uh, in the church, and we're wondering what to do about the bats. And he joked, and he said, a friend of his said to him, what you need to do is to christen and confirm them, and you'll never see them again. (laughs) Yeah, we're seeing failure. We're seeing emptying out. But that's what Owen Baxter said would happen 30 years ago, before these statistics came out. It's during, since that time that he said it, this is massive, massive fall away. And I, in the two talks I'm going to have with you, I want to look once at Saul and once at David. And I have found myself looking into the story of Saul because he said Saul's kingdom was a kind of model of the church that gets it wrong. And David's kingdom is a model of the church that gets it right. And I want to look at those things. And this evening I want to look at Saul's kingdom. And as I say, we'll be looking in and out of a number of chapters. I've, for the last few weeks, been living in these chapters, reading and rereading them. I didn't know which passage to select for reading. It's too difficult. So we'll just be dipping in and out of many passages in this area. First of all, we're going to talk about Saul from the point of faulty foundations. All right, That's the first heading. Faulty foundations. Foundations. How did Saul come on the scene? Well, let me remind you of the background. Uh, Samuel had been God's prophet to uh, his generation. He had been God's spokesman. He had enjoyed phenomenal impact uh, through his life and ministry. People went to hear him, to hear what God would say through him. He was God's chosen instrument from childhood and through a life of ministry. But there came a season in the nation's life when they were became, becoming increasingly impressed with their contemporaries. And Israel began to say things like this, we want a God, we want a king like other nations. We want to be like the other nations. We, we don't want to be as we are. We are, uh, need a king. And so they came to Samuel one day and said, appoint a king for us. And Samuel felt this deeply in himself. He felt rejected. But God said, no, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And in this attempt to take on the, uh, their contemporaries' uh, style, they were missing something massive. They were forgetting the uniqueness of the nation. They were saying, other nations have kings, other nations do it this way. Why can't we have a king who can lead us into battle, who can fight our battles for us, who can add weight to us as a people? And being impressed with their contemporaries was the first mistake they made, a tragic 
tragic mistake. And actually, even more so when you see that it starts, the kind of groundswell of opinion that's growing in the nation comes in 1 Samuel 8. And that's just one chapter after 1 Samuel 7 where there's a wonderful battle where the people of God are outnumbered, Israel is outnumbered, they cry to God, God intervenes, and Samuel sets up a rock and makes a statement, Ebenezer, hitherto the Lord has helped us. This is the unique thing about Israel. Israel is a people saved by the Lord. Israel is a people brought out of Egypt. Israel is a people whom God led through the Red Sea, through the River Jordan, into Israel to take the land, Jericho and other nations. And yet when they got alongside other nations, they began to say, hey, we don't like being different. We don't like being distinctive. And in losing their distinctiveness and wanting to be the same, they lost the huge privilege, the unique privilege that the living God intervenes for them. And even though they put this rock here, that hitherto the Lord has helped us, you'd think you'd never forget when God has broken it. When Joshua told the priests to take stones out of the River Jordan and make an altar, I expect many of them thought, why? Why bother? Why are we doing this? And Joshua was told, in, previous, in, in, in coming generations, people will say, what? What are these stones saying? And they'll say, this is a reminder what God did. And I'm sure at the time they said, well, we won't need a reminder. Who will ever forget we crossed the, the River Jordan? We'll never forget that. But they did. And here, this Ebenezer rock, which is uh, there in chapter 7, is forgotten already by chapter 8. Let's be like the other kings. Let's be like the other nations and have a king. They're impressed and influenced by their contemporaries. Tra- tragically, that's how it's been in the contemporary church, so impressed by what's happening outside, scared to be different, scared to be out of step, scared to be thought quaint, out of date, non-intellectual. In previous generations there was this emphasis, we must prove ourselves as intellectual, we must push our uh, pastors uh, through uh, a training that's scholarly. Now I'm not saying this to be anti-academic, there's nothing clever about being quaint but at the same time we're not to put our trust there we're not to say well listen we, we, we can argue on the same basis this is where our hope is that we can be respectable because of all the letters after our name these days it's moved on from that rather now it's uh, we, we, our, our books for pastors tend to be management techniques and market research and, and we can do these things like you can and we need to learn a big lesson here especially in the UK and the Western church where we don't have lots and lots of Christians looking to see which church to go to. In the USA, we know there are often thousands and thousands of church-going people. They're just trying to look for a church they like and they're, they're learning to market their churches very often in a kind of consumer mentality. Well, in Western Europe, we don't have consumer mentality in the church. We don't have people. We've got to go and get them. And so if we think we're going to learn from contemporary market research and learn from those sort of things, we miss the point. We need to find God. We need to get hold of God. And we need to beware the danger that Saul made, or at least not Saul, his contemporaries. Saul, perhaps one of the most tragic, I think personally the most tragic figure in the scripture, that he started so well as we'll see in a moment. But he was a product of the generation. The generation forced him through. They said, we want a king. And this poor guy gets drawn in by just the climate 
of the people of God. And we've come through such a time and we need to be very careful as we press forward that we are not misled just by being influenced by contemporary values, contemporary ways of thinking. Beware the danger that says, you can't expect contemporary people to believe in this. I was interviewed just this last couple of days by local press and the guy said, well, you mean in, you believe in the prophetic? A kind of prophetic? Do you mean you're a prophet? And with that is this idea, are you kind of weird? <laughs> now, isn't it true? Whereas we're saying, the Bible says in the last days your sons and daughters will prophesy. But that's who we are. That's what we believe. We believe God speaks. We believe in an interventionist deity. A God who breaks in. That's not popular. That's not modern. And so if we get scared of that and say, well, no, no, of course God doesn't really speak. We just, uh, prayer is just getting psychological help. You don't really talk to anybody. It's just getting the burden off. You know, you just feel better after you've done it. No, we say, no, we ask and it happens. We pray and people get better. We pray and big money comes. We pray, we move into another town. We pray another nation opens because God is with us and on the move with us. We're not explaining it away, we're demonstrating it. And if we don't break out of the fear of explaining it away, we will miss the way seriously. If we get inhibited by we must be like the others, that's what it was like in Saul's day. That's what threw up Saul. That's what brought him into being. We must be like the others. And we need to see the radical nature of what our kind of church is. Even as we saw on the video, yeah, it's radical. And so they were being shaped by contemporary. They were also shaped by fear. The Philistines were growing in strength. You can see numbers referred to more and more. The Philistine army growing in power, more and more soldiers. And the sense of what will happen to us. If we don't. Now fear is always a wrong motivation for Christians. Always a wrong motivation for leaders. You must never get yourself cornered into the question, what if we don't? Fear is never a long-term motivation. It never leads you anywhere. Just, if, you, if you follow a course of action through fear, it may get you off the hook for a moment. It doesn't lead you to fruitfulness. And if you get into an elders meeting or a discussing thing and you find that what if question comes, what if we don't, what about? You need to stop and say, hey, we probably need to pray. We're getting scared. We're not in faith here. Here they were frightened of the growing impact of the Philistines. You can be scared of the growing impact of all kinds of groups in modern society. They can force you into action that's not appropriate. And so they were rejecting God's servant as a result of this and God makes it very clear they are rejecting him. God's way had always been that he called his servants because he is God. He calls forth his servant. He says, Samuel, even as a little boy, he calls him as a child, Samuel, Samuel. And heaven breaks in. Like with Moses, there's a burning bush. Moses, heaven breaks in. God calls, God acts, God initiates. When we get away from that, when we say we we must do something, we must organise, we must put together, if we somehow block off this God breaking in, we we forget who we are. We forget our identity. We are a people whom God has broken in on. And the church has tended to forget that. We've lost our way in terms of realising that God is a God who intervenes. And so here we find human preference choosing a better way. Make us a king. 
tragedy is this, that what you make you have to carry. As we'll see as the story unfolds. It's a bit like in the wilderness. As, as Moses is up in the mountain for a moment. Make us a golden calf. Make us a, someone to lead us. But when you make a golden calf, you have to carry a golden calf. It doesn't carry you. It's not underneath are the everlasting arms. It's just, no, we, we produce this. And we'll adjust this. You don't like that? I would take that bit off. The golden calf, how would you like it? How, how, how would you, you Just tell us how... Just chop this. How do you like Saul? Well, he's going to be head and shoulders. Oh, that's good. That's a good start. He's handsome. Great. We can produce something, but when the pressure comes in a moment, he doesn't solve our problems. He is not the answer. He is not the way forward. In great contrast to God's way, Samuel, he knew. God called him. He felt this. You'll find men in the Bible, Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they represent God. And Moses, they're wrapped up with God. They, they mediate. They stand with God. They see it from God's perspective. They shepherd the people. That's God's way. It's not voting and democracy and we'll get this gang here and we'll produce. No, no, it comes down. That's essential. It comes down out of heaven. That is the nature of the charismatic. It comes down out of heaven. The anointing of God, the, the, the choice of God. Breaking in, God taking the initiative. The Apostle Paul said of himself, Galatians 1.1, Paul, an apostle, not from man, not through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He wants people to know, as he gets into debate in the church of his generation on the grace law issue, listen, I'm not here, but there wasn't a vote to put me in place. God called me, not from man. I don't answer to man, ultimately. Now we know his tender, gentle heart. We know how that gets expressed in so many ways, in an endeavour to win and and not to bully. But he knows, essentially, I've been called like Samuel knew. And when the church loses that sense of identity and wonder, God called us. We are supernatural. God got hold of us. We're not just trying to keep people happy with intellectual answer. In the end, we're going to say, our saviour rose from the dead. It's intellectual nonsense. The cross will always be folly. We can't explain it away. We need to let it stand there, stark. I'm amazed at how God allowed, I'm, I would think ordained, the passion of the Christ, this big movie that has circled the world. It's almost like God saying, I'm just going to put this in your face, I'm going to placard it. We mustn't be ashamed of the cross. It's intellectually difficult. It's foolishness to the world. But we need to see, if we're going to impact our generation, beloved, it's not common sense that will do it, it's God breaking in. Saul's kingdom doesn't represent that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, just as we've been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. Paul knew ultimately, he said, listen, I'm not listening to the way you judge me. Ultimately, God will judge me. And when we lose that fear of God element, we're just like any other club. And the world knows it. And the world laughs at it. And so we need to see the danger of wrong appetites and desires forcing the church to take steps that we should never have taken. You know, when you start finding your shirts buttoned up on the wrong buttons because the first one was wrong, you need to undo the whole jolly lot. Otherwise, it really gets you in problems. Do the buttons up again. We got the first one wrong. Let's do it again. And we need to see that church, 
got it on the wrong button. Let's do it all over again. Beware of being shaped by the, the style around, being shaped by fear. Remember, we are a unique people of God. That's the story. That's how it starts. Second thing I notice is this strange thing, or related to that, is that he has surface success. All right? So it was faulty foundations, but surface success. The strange thing is this, that God goes along with them. You find the three times in chapter 8, verses 7, 9, and 22, God says to Samuel, listen to their voice. In other words, do what they want. It's one of the very alarming things in the Bible, that sometimes God just lets happen what he's plainly said he doesn't want to happen. Just go with it. They want quails, oh, we'll give them quails. They want this, oh, let it happen, let it happen. It's very frightening. It's like God says, okay, you want it, you have it. It's a scary time. Ultimately, it comes to Romans 1, and it says three times, God gave them up. But the ultimate God giving them up is hell. When God says, I won't speak again. Hell is a place where God will never speak again. He'll never say, no, I told you. No, no, it's all over. And there are times. Men like Herod, when Jesus is standing before him, you think, what's, what's he going to say? And Jesus didn't say a word. Nothing more to say. And there are come seasons here, and, and here's, here people say, we want a king. It was not what God was doing. It was hurtful to Samuel, who understood something of the heart of God, even as Hosea and Jeremiah and others felt the heart of God in these issues. But God says to his dear servant, let it happen. Just let it run. Okay, let it run. And then we see these extraordinary things, really. God's amazing mercy, and I don't know that I can button down every detail here, but I've been looking at it and praying over it and watching it over these last few weeks. Saul has an opportunity. He gets told amazing things. God chooses him, actually, under the pressure of the nation, saying, give us a king. God does intervene. God gets involved. He is the one who selects Saul in this pressure. He's outwardly impressive. He's handsome. He has this testimony. 1 Samuel 9, 2. None more handsome. All right? He's a hunky guy. And he's head and shoulders taller. He's also got other attributes. He's serving his father. He's got a good hard attitude, it would appear. The story of his looking for the donkeys, the lost donkeys. He's just doing a task because his father asked him to. That's a good spirit, really. The servant says to him, hey, why don't we go and inquire of Samuel? He says, okay. He's a man willing to take counsel from a servant. This is good, sign, good stuff. God's got his hand in it. It's God who speaks to Samuel about him. He demonstrates some humility. We find in chapter 9, verse 21, when he is approached by Samuel, his response is this, but I'm, I'm a Benjamite. That's the smallest tribe. And my family are the least. And so he's not showing aggression. He's not, he's not a pushy guy. He's saying, hey, I, I'm not worthy of this. He's showing humility. He's indeed, even after uh, Samuel has dealt with him secretly and is about to make public announcement, here's the guy. It says, they try and find him. Where is he? And chapter 10, 22 says he's hiding himself by the baggage. This is after the spirits come on him. He's still got this kind of, well, don't, you know, not me. 
And then in chapter 11, verse 13, we haven't got time to get into it, but there was a battle, and some of the guys who turned against Saul uh, are found to be in the wrong place, as it were, and, uh, and people say, let's, let's deal with them harshly, and Saul says, no, no, no one should die today. You think, boy, this guy starts well. I'm hoping you remember some of the background. As I say, I can't read chapter after chapter here. But he shows a lot of grace. He shows a lot of humility, and he can be impressive on the surface. Beloved, discerning what is of God and what isn't is not always easy. And this is outwardly impressive. Saul is outwardly impressive, no question. One more ingredient is that he experiences the supernatural. The Spirit came upon him and he prophesied. And he's a charismatic. He's, he's prophesying. He's, he's knowing, whoa, is Saul among the prophets? He's prophesying. He's in the Spirit. This is an amazing guy, humble, impressive, tall, handsome, works well with a servant, honours his father. This is impressive. He even knows incredible zeal in battle. 1 Samuel 11, verses 6 and 7. He's zealous. The Holy Spirit empowers him. He calls the nation to battle. You think, well, boy, this is a good, good start for a guy. But sadly, we begin to see the failures that are there. So the next thing I want to look at is defective devotion, right? Defective devotion. The pressure begins to come on. Jesus said this, two men build a house, one builds on sand, the other builds on rock. It would appear from the story that they're building next to one another, they both look the same. They look the same, the same storm hits them. But it is the storm that shows you what's faulty. It's the tests of time, it's the pressure that's going to show what's real. It's the pressure that comes that begins to show us that Saul is not the real thing. He's not the genuine article. He looks good on the surface, but he's not the genuine article when the pressure comes. And what do we see? We see, well, the pressure, the beginning, the, uh, the, the, the expression of being impressed by their enemies. Suddenly, they are now scared of their enemies. Enemy power begins to overwhelm them. We see numbers again. 1 Samuel 13, 5, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people like sand on the seashore. I mean, this is, this is crowds. And the, suddenly, the, the, you know, get us a king is not adequate. We, we need a king, we've got problems. No, suddenly, what we thought we were answering the problem, no, it's not big enough, the problem's bigger. The challenge is great. I was just noticing verse uh, 6. It really surprised me. It says in 1 Samuel 13, 6, The men of Israel saw they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. And then it says this, Then the people hid themselves in caves, thickets, cliffs, cellars, and pits. I'm reading this, I think, why didn't it just say they hid? <laughs> and it's, I can't imagine. It's all these soldiers, you know. And, and, it, and it gives this list. I think, why does the Bible give us such a list? There's caves. I can imagine a few soldiers saying, oh, there's a cave. All hiding it. No, we're in here. Go away. All right, okay. We'll find a thicket. There's, oh, no, no. There's already some in the thicket. No, there's a cliff. There's a, no, no. There's some already in the cliff. Where can we find somewhere to try and hide? And so they, they come to the next, the next place to see if they can find a gap. No, there's somebody in there already. In the cellars and in the pits. Why is it bother to say all this? The army's scared out of their lives. They're hiding everywhere you can hide. And I thought, what are the modern equivalents of these hiding places that these guys scared of? Well, there's denial. 
You know, we hide in denial. There's nothing wrong. We're doing all right. 20 million people had their children christened. Everything's all right. And a recent poll said that 65% still believe there's a God. It's okay. It's not as bad as you think. There's kind of hiding in the cave called denial. Hiding in the thicket of statistics saying it's not so bad or of cynicism. What do you expect in a sophisticated society? People rush off to hide in all kinds of places. This is a difficult place, the most difficult place there is. There's all kinds of hiding places or in the despair, you know, the pits. People hid in the pits. There are all kinds of hiding places, but it doesn't get the thing answered. And in that we see some, even, verse 7, cross Jordan into the land of Gad. In other words, they got out. And we've seen that, people just getting out, they're just leaving, just leaving in their crowds, because really something we've built up, something we've created, a Christianity that's not authentic, that doesn't have the touch of God, it doesn't give you the peace of God. You can make it, but it doesn't comfort you. And verse 7 says this, the people who followed were trembling. So even the ones that were following this king that they'd called Uh, to lead them. They didn't have confidence. He didn't inspire confidence in them. They were following, trembling. And so then we find in that setting, Saul is tested, and he's supposed to wait for Samuel. But what we see, and these are are serious things, because I really do believe that in some ways, Saul was given an opportunity. We're going to see later on, God says to him, yeah, you were humble in your own eyes, but I made you king. And I gave you instructions. It's no good saying, well, uh, the others, the people told me, hey, I gave you a chance. You've got to stand up and be counted now. So often, when we get the kind of a democratic thing in church life, people want to hide behind one another. No, if you've got responsibility, you will answer to God. And Saul was given responsibility by God. He couldn't hide behind the crowd anymore. Leadership, you can't hide behind the crowd ultimately. You answer to God ultimately. And here is this man going to be found out. He, he was a man without a relationship with God, really. That's the bottom line. And so when God says, or when Samuel said to him, now you must wait for me to come. And you remember the story, I'm sure, of 1 Samuel 13. And he's supposed to wait because Samuel will come to him. And uh, he's got to wait seven days, if you remember the story. And uh, Samuel delayed. And uh, he comes actually on the seventh day. But just before he's come, Samuel finds out that Saul has, as he says, forced himself to take on priestly duties. He's gone beyond his realm. He's stepped out of the, the area of responsibility that he had been given. He snatched some of Saul, uh, Samuel's responsibility. He couldn't wait anymore for Samuel. He says, I'm going to do this thing. I'm just going to do it. I won't wait any longer. And he said, well, I've waited the seven days. But actually, Samuel turns up. He's just done it. And there he's found. Samuel's there on the right day. But Saul said, but you didn't come. So what are we seeing? We're seeing this obedience... It's only real obedience when you go right to the end of what God says to you to do. And very often we are tested at the end of an, Ameri- of, of an obedience factor. Will we do exactly what God requires of us? And here we find that Samuel sees Saul taking things into his own hands. He says, uh, well, I will, I will just uh, bring the offering. I'll do it. shouldn't have done it. It was outside 
of his sphere. He doesn't really understand how it works. He doesn't understand what the spiritual is about. Well, we'll do the spiritual. We'll do the spiritual thing that Samuel should have done. Samuel's not here, so we'll do it. We need to be careful of getting into the spiritual but not understanding what it's about. We can be like that with prayer meetings. Well, we have a prayer meeting, but, but what, what did, why do we do it? Well, you're supposed to, aren't you? What happened? What, uh, did God come? Did you get answers? No, we did a prayer time. And we kind of measure it up by hours spent instead of answers received. Well, it was, a, it was a good time, but what did we accomplish? What did we receive? What, what happened? What transactions with God did you have? And people think, well, I don't understand about transactions with God. I thought we just had to have prayer meetings. And then people get bored with prayer meetings. Because, well, we're just going through it. We're just doing it. You're supposed to do it, aren't you? When you look at the book of Acts, they're not just doing it. They're encountering God. You look at the great prayers of the Bible. This is us laying hold of God together. And so Samuel, I beg your pardon, Saul, simply gets into the religious thing, but he doesn't understand what's meant to happen. He's just doing it. Now we need to be very, very careful. We're not just doing stuff. Because here, yeah, well he did it, but he didn't touch God, and God wasn't in it, and he wasn't being obedient to what God had for him. And made a real mess of what he was supposed to be doing. He took things into his own hands. Obedience that yields under a pressure is not real obedience. It's very easy to do what seems to be the will of God when there's no pressure. When it's not really tested. It's like, well, I, you know, we say, well, I will give to God. Yeah, but we can't this month. Why? Well, it's tight. You mean you give when you can? Not that we give anyway. Or it may be, well, we tell the truth when you can, but listen, if I told the truth at work, I'd lose my job. If I run an honest business, we can't survive these days. I have to lie. So we'll be truthful until it hurts. We'll be faithful until it's difficult. Or we'll be loyal to our wife until, well, you don't understand, I really love this woman. No, 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 I've heard about these horrid things that happen where guys go off. No, but you don't understand. We really love one another. We feel God's in it. When we pray together, we feel God's there. You can hear that kind of talk again and again. I've been in Christian ministry long enough to hear people talk like that. They, they're shocked when other people do it, but suddenly this relationship creeps into their lives. And they'll say things like that. They say, oh, no, you don't understand. It's not ugly. I just know that. I just know we feel spiritually joined. And it's not like that with my wife anymore. We don't seem to have anything in common anymore. But when I pray with this woman, we just, our hearts are together. And we just feel God's. We had a prophecy the other day. And, and people are true until it touches them. Obedient until the pressure's on. And then disobedient. Loyal until you get hurt. Loyal until, well, it just touched my life. And phew. We can teach loyalty, but I feel, hey, what about me? Now, obedience through pressure is the only obedience that's worth anything. Obedience when it hurts. Obedience when there's no other thing for it, but I'm just doing this for God. That's the only real thing. We can all be obedient when it doesn't hurt. We can all be obedient when there's no price. The test comes, the trial of your faith, more precious than gold. Will you stay true when it hurts. 
Well, you say, no, I, this is wrong. This is wrong. I, I know it's attractive. I know it's doing something for me. But it is clearly wrong. I will be judged ultimately by the truth, not by how I felt. And surely Jesus was with us. I'm going to be judged according to truth. And so we, hear, we find Saul is, he's just, he keeps, keeps moving ground. He's not loyal. He's not true. He's got an excuse. In fact, he turns on his Samuel. He says, he says, the troops were scattering, the Philistines were assembling, and you were late. He knows how to blame shift. The crowds, the look at the and you weren't here. He was there, he was there on time, but he wasn't there in the morning, he was there in the afternoon, but he said seven days. He was on time. But Saul knew how to shift it over and blame Samuel. He really wasn't a godly man. He didn't walk in the fear of God. He knew how to pull this in and pull that out and make a case. Make himself look good. It's not authentic. He says, verse 12, I forced myself and bought the offering. While the people were pressuring me, I didn't want to do it, but I did it. In other words, he knew it was wrong. Are you like that? We need to see this terrible warning. Samuel makes a plain statement, verse 13, you acted foolishly. He's made all these excuses. The crowd, the numbers, you were late, and, 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 and Sam says, you're a fool. It's frightening to really encounter. Later on we're going to see in 1 Samuel 15. It's extraordinary. You get 1 Samuel 13 where he gets this one uh, area of disobedience and messing up. Then you get 1 Samuel 14 which is the wonderful illustration of his son, Jonathan, who's everything that Saul should have been. Full of faith. Come on, God can save. Let's go and smash those Philistines. Let's go and do it. And actually, Saul gets on the end of that victory and sort of makes it his own. Says, oh, we've had a great victory. And then chapter 15 comes back again, again. He hasn't learned the lesson the first time. He has this terrible, serious thing from Samuel. And he has told that the kingdom will no longer uh, go on. He doesn't say God's taken the kingdom from you, Saul, but he says the dynasty will not last. That's the warning he's getting. The dynasty will not last. That's it. God's not pleased with you. You're a king. You're a king. You may think, I'm a nothing. No, you're a king. And beloved, we're sons of God. You make good decisions because you make a give account for bad decisions and bad action. And we want to take that kind of thing seriously. So you get 13 where he does bad, 14 where Jonathan does well, and Saul gets in on the end of the battle and wins it. And then you get chapter 15 and you see the next one, the last straw really for him. With a story of the Amalekites. You remember, God said to him, now go, it's very specific, go and utterly destroy them. And then you find the, the crowd are not willing to utterly destroy. Another strange passage for the modern mind. We haven't time to try and get into that, but here it is, a clear expressed instruction, go and thoroughly destroy the Amalekites who did so wickedly against Israel earlier in their history, but they were not willing to destroy them utterly. That's Saul's predicament. Saul is a product of the people, and so when the people say, we're not willing to do it, Saul's trapped. He's not one who's come down out of heaven. He's not like a, he's not like a New Testament Paul or a Samuel who says, no, I'm before God. No, the people threw him up. The people dictate what happens. He answers to the people and fails miserably. In the midst of it, fails also to discern the seriousness of it. Verse 11, God says these frightening words, I regret 
1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret I have made Saul king. He has turned back from following me. And if you read the passage carefully from chapter to chapter, I believe Saul had a real chance to make good. He was given an honest opportunity to make good. But he's not carried out my commands, God says. And Samuel rose early, verse 12, to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he's setting up a monument for himself. You think, boy, this guy couldn't be much more wrong. He's making a monument to himself? He's pretty pleased with the victory of chapter 14, perhaps. He's making a monument. He's so shallow, he's so ignorant. Verse 13, he comes to Samuel and says, Blessed are you of the Lord. Very easy with the glib religious phrase. Blessed are you, Samuel. Welcome. Bless you. I've crowded out the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel says, what's this bleating then? I thought you were supposed to have put to death this wickedness. What's this bleating? What's this history on your internet? Oh no, I've put it to death. Uh, I just pressed the history button. What's this you've been looking at? No, I don't speak to her anymore. Uh, what's this phone call you made? No, I don't do it. Any- hey, there are things crying out. What's this bleating? You're saying, oh, it's okay now. God hears the bleating. God sees the secret things. God sees what's happening secretly. And we're saying, well, I'll build a monument. And it's a monument built on disobedience. Blessed are you of the Lord. He's learned the jargon. And then verse 16, very frightening phrase. Let me tell you what God said to me last night. Ouch. You know, you're giving your excuses. You're trying to win Samuel, just kind of get him going. Well, the crowd and this and that, and I've got my reasons. And Samuel, the man of God, says, let me tell you what God said to me last night. God settled this. God's dealt with this. God's judgment on this is settled. And beloved, there's a lot that's happened in church life across this nation, and God is saying, I've had enough. And his judgment on it is settled. I'm wanting, as I bring these two messages, not just to point the finger at other church life, oh, we're not like that. I want it to search my heart. And I want it to search yours as well. God help us not to have any trace of this in our hearts. This Saul type church life, this Saul type following after God. Behind the scenes, God had made his assessment. And actually, this is where you get this frightening verse 17. Though you were little in your own eyes... You were made head. There is, a, there is a humility that's dangerous. I felt challenged by this and praying over this. There is a humility that's dangerous that, that kind of washes your hands. Says, well, I'm, I'm just this or I'm not that. I, you know, I don't feel I've got this. I don't. God says, hey, enough of that. I gave you a responsibility. Now that's awesome. It's not enough for us to, to try and use humility as the escape valve. Well, I'm not, I don't want to push myself and the, the crowd wanted and the people. And God says, listen to me. You may have been humble in your own eyes, but I gave you instruction. Now, what are you doing with it? And humility is not going to match. God will cut through it. There's no hiding place, beloved. If God said to you, you may say, well, I feel so weak. If God called you and said, I want you to do this, humility is no hiding place. Because we're going to have to face God one day. 
You say, well, I didn't, I didn't want to push myself. God says, not pushing yourself is doing what you said. What I said to you to do. We give account to God. And Saul had no appetite for that. It's dangerous, isn't it? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Don't you realize the dignity? You're king over Israel. You're not somebody who doesn't count. You're a child of God. You're not a nobody. He knows you by name. He saved you, made you his own. The dignity of being a child of God makes the seriousness of the failure far greater. The Lord sent you on a mission. Go. Utterly destroy the Amalekites. You're a God-commissioned person. What are you playing at? We need to let that grab us. You're a God-commissioned person. What are you playing at? We'll give account to God one day. And so we get denial, blame-shifting, and false religion. I did obey, verse 20. God's just said you didn't. Not a clever argument. God's just told you the reality. But the people, verse 21. And, verse 22, I was making sacrifice. And then there comes that famous, famous statement. What does the Lord require? Sacrifice or obedience? What is he more interested in? And it says, I, verse 24, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Beloved, that brings us right back to the beginning. Make us a God. Make us a king. Give us a king. The people throw up the king. The king fears the people. It doesn't answer. What we need to be is authentically, biblically charismatic. We fear the Lord. But God raises up leadership. God anoints leadership. It's always been that way. We respect anointing because anointing comes down out of heaven. To not do so is to miss the biblical principle. We thought we'll have our committee, we have our board of deacons, we all have our vote. Hey, that is a million miles from the Bible. A million miles. Because, well, that's the way we run church. It's not in the Bible. In the Bible, God gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers from heaven. The ascended Christ gives. Just like in the Old Testament, he raised up a Moses and Elijah and Isaiah. That's the way it's always been. God from heaven raising up. How come we think we from earth can raise up? We get the end product. People who only get those who follow trembling or run away don't stand. It's a big, big issue that Ern Baxter put his finger on. These churches will crumble. And we need to be very careful that we are not drawn into that kind of a man-produced church life. God's response is this. You rejected the word, I reject you. The people rejected God as king, now God rejects Saul as king then my last or next to last point is this reluctant reluctant repentance and I think actually maybe this is the, the saddest thing about Saul he didn't know how to repent even Ahab repented and God showed him mercy even Ahab terrible terrible king far worse than Saul it seems to me But he repented and he came back. Oh, God have mercy. God have mercy on him. Saul, you will not see a trace of repentance. He doesn't know how to repent. It's one of the biggest differences between him and David. You could even argue, didn't David do worse things than Saul? Committed adultery, killed, or arranged for the death of a a warrior? 
It's a terrible, but boy, he really repented. He really got back. We'll look at that on another night. But Saul here, he doesn't know how to repent. If you look at Acts uh, chapter 13, rather, we looked at 1 Samuel 13, there's no evidence of repentance at all. When Samuel comes and says, that's it, God's angry with you. He doesn't show any sign. He doesn't say, I failed, I sinned. He doesn't say it at all in the first time. No sense of it at all. Though he's told the kingdom shall not endure. He doesn't take it seriously. In 1 Samuel 20, 31, it says this. Saul, speaking to Jonathan, says, As long as David lives, your kingdom, Jonathan, will not be established. Hey, wake up, Saul. God already told you that your succession won't carry on. He's not taking God seriously. He thinks he can get away with it. There's a lot of that. In the modern church, sometimes we put it under a label grace and we've misunderstood. This man doesn't repent. He didn't take the warning seriously. In chapter 15, when he, he, he apparently repents, you notice it? Uh, verse, chapter 15, 24, I have sinned, I feared the people and obeyed them. It's a kind of half, I'm sorry. It's their fault, really. It's not an honest repentance. It's not taking it on the chin. It's not saying, God, I live before you. He's trying to live before other people. Well, the others pushed me. I just did what they... I was going with them. I mean, they felt it as much as I did. We felt it together, really. Hiding behind the crowd. Not facing responsibility. Just outward. And then notice this, verse 30 of chapter 15. Please honour me now before the elders. I mean, Samuel's just said, the kingdom is taken from you. He said, oh, please, when you go out from here, will you walk with me? Because what will the elders think? It's pathetic. What will other people think when God's just brought this awful judgment and there's no real repentance at all? It goes on and on and on. Even later, you'll find when, Samuel, or when uh, Saul calls up Samuel, you remember that weird story when he goes to the medium, and, and, and then he gets this judgment, this word that comes. And then he says, I will not eat. And then the medium says, oh, you must. You must be hungry. He says, oh, all right, I'll have a meal. <laughs> this guy is deeply impressive. One minute, I will not eat. You find when Jonathan has his battle, and, 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 and Saul doesn't know who's fought, and, and he says, no one should eat honey today, or eat today, and Jonathan has honey. And then, and then Saul says, he says to him, or he says to the people, whoever it is, they will die today. You think, wow, this is big stuff. And they say, oh, it's Jonathan. Oh, please don't let him die. All right. I mean, the guy's pathetic. There is no integrity of soul. There's no living with himself. It's just keeping people happy. And we live in that kind of generation. Just living before other people's eye. What do other people think? What do the crowd think? I'll go with the crowd. It reflects the kind of political world. What do the people want? And God wants his church so distinctively different. God doesn't want a church that just looks like a reflection of the world. Matthew Paris in the Times wrote his report on the church's attitude to homosexuality. And he wrote saying that he wasn't a Christian quite publicly. But he said... Jesus would never have agreed with what's being said and done. And he had the courage and the conviction to say, hey listen, Jesus doesn't seem to be swayed by the crowd. 
Jesus doesn't seem to be shaped by modern thinking. Jesus, he's not like that. And I thought, this is what, I can't, I wish I'd found the quote for you. But I thought it was one of the most outstanding statements that was current in the conversation at that time. In the Times, half page, excellent leader, written by a man who himself was not happy with the church's stance, but saying, listen, Jesus would not have taken this line. And bishops were not saying that so much. And it was a shame that had to come in that kind of a way. We need the courage of our convictions, beloved. We need to see the church standing unique, true to the scripture. The tragedy of Saul is he just reflected his generation. He did not represent God. Last of all then, the confiscated kingdom. The confiscated kingdom. Today, this kingdom is taken from you. That's God's word. He said, well, does that mean he wasn't king the next day? No, he was there the next day. He was there for a few years, actually. But God's assessment is this. It's over. When God steps in, when God acts, when God speaks with that kind of statement, today the kingdom is taken from you. And instead of repenting, instead of pleading and saying, God, please forgive me, please have mercy, he walks away, he misses it completely. And we find that his soul is stir- becomes more and more troubled. And as David's kingdom begins to emerge, or at least David's role and sphere, you find he's full of jealousy and hatred and bitterness. David's success made him dread him. He, f- he was frightened of the authentic thing that was coming through. The, auth- the authentic anointing that was coming down out of heaven troubled him profoundly. As the work of the flesh will fight against the spirit. And really there's, there's these two kingdoms of the spirit and the flesh. The letter and the spirit. And here you find this man who represents something not born in God. He opposes, he plots, he opposes to try and stop this work of God, this new, new work of God. Today, we're living in days, beloved, when so much that's gone in the name of church is dying, buildings closing, people who have not respected the anointing of God, who have closed their door, God is going to do a new thing. God is doing a new thing. God's spirit is at work. When I was uh, being interviewed at one of the Does the Future Have a Church tours, one evening, a guy from the radio was interviewing me. He said, what's this all about? Does the future have a church? And I said, "Uh, well, have you not noticed that uh, all over the nation there are buildings that uh, used to be churches. Now they're warehouses, they're libraries, they're all kinds of other things, they're schools, and uh, they used to be churches. And uh, he, he didn't really know me, didn't know my background much at all, but he came from inner London. And I'm telling him, all the churches, all the churches are becoming warehouses and so on. And he said, that's funny, he said, where I live, all the warehouses are becoming churches. <laughs> and he said, all the, ch- all the schools, he said, we're finding difficulty finding a place we can have a church. Because everyone is being used on Sunday, and more and more churches, more and more churches. And I thought, wow, boy, what, what, it just when it came to me so strongly, this is what Owen Baxter said. Owen Baxter said there will be this change. There will be things that closed out. Used to be a church, now a warehouse. It's as plain as this. Used to be a warehouse, now it's a church. 
He said that on a Sunday morning, he said, you can't find one. All these places, they're, they're becoming churches. And then I thought, yes, that's what happened on BBC One on Easter Sunday morning. There was what used to be a warehouse, and now it's a church. And it's the Sunday, Easter Sunday broadcast right across the nation. And we're singing, he is risen, he is risen. And there's a church starting a warehouse. And it's packed. And we get letters from all over the country saying, is there a church like yours near us? And we have to phone back and say, not yet, but there's going to be one soon. (laughs) Amen. There's going to be one soon because Saul's kingdom is dying. And David's kingdom is going to emerge all over. People full of the Spirit who truly love the Word of God. And I don't mean new frontiers. I don't mean uniquely us. I mean all across the world. All across the world. And all across this nation, people who love truth, people who welcome the Spirit, people who are not scared to own what the Bible has to say and try to live out this godly life that we're called to, it's going to grow and grow and grow. Amen? It's going to break out on the right hand and the left. The church is going to be glorious again. We're going to have church that we're not ashamed of. Church we have to apologize for. There's going to come all kinds of movements still going to happen. Still going to be changes and breakthroughs and and kind of landslides. But out of it will come the true, authentic people of God. And already in the Southern Hemisphere, that kind of church is dominating the growth and advance of the gospel. Already we're seeing in the Southern Hemisphere particularly, South America, across Africa, in Asia, out of China a church will burst out. Beautiful, dignified, through the, the fires of uh, oppression and persecution. A beautiful, glorious church. Let's not be scared in our day. Let's not be frightened of the uniqueness of the people of God. The church is a unique people. We have to do it His way. Not following the fad. Not following human methods, market research, business methods. But what does God want? Respecting anointing, because anointing tells us who the king is. He gives as he will. He gives his spirit according to his purpose. God's amazing ways. Beloved, we need to be responsible. We know that God started in our lives and we've had privileges. We've had a touch of the spirit. There are good things in us. Beware, we don't follow the sole way and lose our inheritance, and lose our way forward. Let's stand to pray. Good if the band came up, please, Will. Let's just pray, let's just lift our faces to God. Saul was a charismatic inexperience. He prophesied. He knew something of the passion of the Spirit on him. But he wasn't rooted deeply in a relationship with the Spirit. He didn't develop a knowledge of God. He didn't have a love for God. He didn't care about not offending the Holy Spirit. God's looking for us to not have faulty foundations. That we're true when the pressure's not on. Holy Spirit, we do 
invite you please to search us out Lord we so much Lord want to not be playing at it we so much Lord don't want to be playing at religion playing at being sons of God we so want the authentic